0: When I was a kid, maybe 10 or 11, I watched televangelists. You know, the ones on TV, dressed in custom suits, preaching loudly about health and wealth, even performing miraculous healings, while all the while cameras are rolling. I was perplexed by these televangelists as a kid, even fascinated. Was this legit? If so, I wanted in. Or was this just... Bad religion. There's another man who had an even closer association with televangelists growing up. His name is Costi Hen, the nephew of Benny Hen. In case you don't know, Benny Hen is one of the most popular televangelists, also one of the wealthiest. Have you ever co- come across Benny while channel surfing? Maybe you even paused there for a bit and wondered, like me, is this legit? Or is this just bad religion? Benny's nephew, Costi, now grown up, gives us his perspective. In a recent article of Christianity Today, he gives us an insider's look into the family's ministry. He writes, My father pastored a small church in Vancouver. During my teenage years, he would travel nearly twice a month with my uncle, Benny Hinn. Prosperity theology paid amazingly well. We lived in a 10,000-square-foot mansion, guarded by a private gate, drove two Mercedes-Benz vehicles, vacationed in exotic destinations, and shopped at the most expensive stores. On top of that, we bought a $2 million Ocean View home in Dana Point, California, where another Benz joined the fleet. We were abundantly blessed. <laughs> in painful candor, he goes on, Growing up in the Hen family empire, was like belonging to some hybrid of the royal family and the mafia. Our lifestyle was lavish, our loyalty was enforced, and our version of the gospel, get this, our version of the gospel was big business. Though Jesus Christ was still a part of our gospel, he was more of a magic genie than the king of kings. Rubbing him the right way by giving money and having enough faith would unlock your spiritual inheritance. God's goal was not his glory, but our gain. His grace was not to set us free from sin, but to make us rich. We lived the prosperity gospel. As Costi reflects on his upbringing through the lens of the cross of Christ, he becomes convicted and convinced that what he's been involved in for so many years is just bad religion. How do you think Jesus responds to bad religion? Now televangelists are an extreme example, so let's make it personal, shall we? Let's take a good hard look in the mirror. Are there ways we participate in what Jesus would call bad religion? Are there ways, maybe not as extreme as making millions off of a distorted gospel, but are there ways that we too approach God with a self-centered attitude? well, what's in it for me? If so, how do you suppose Jesus responds to such bad religion? If you had to take a wild guess, what course of action do you think Jesus takes against bad religion? Thanks to the gospel writer John, we don't have to guess. All we have to do is read and understand our scripture for today. John chapter 2, verses 13 to 25 first let us pray. Guide us, O Lord, by your word and spirit, that in your light we may see light, in your truth find freedom, and in your will discover peace. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Hear the good news, according to John. The Passover of the Jews was near. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. Making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple, both the sheep and the cattle. He also poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He told those who were selling the doves, Take these things out of here. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. His disciples remember that it was written, "Zeal for your house will consume me." The Jews then said to him, "What sign can you show us for doing this?" Jesus answered, "Destroy this temple, and I will re- and in 3 days I will raise it up." The Jews then said, this temple has been under construction for 46 years, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. When he was in Jerusalem during the Passover festival, many believed in his name because they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, would not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to testify about anyone, for he himself knew what was in everyone. This is the word of the Lord. So what's the problem with the temple? That Jesus takes such drastic measures against it. What's the problem, anyways? What is going on with the worship of God's people that provokes the most forceful actions we ever see in Jesus of Nazareth? Did you sense the power? We could almost, we could almost say the aggression in Jesus' actions. Jesus drives out animals with a whip, pours out coins, and overturns tables. Then he speaks to, with authority to those selling doves. Take these things out of here. This is not the gentle Jesus we're accustomed to. What happened to the holy infant so tender and mild? It looks as if he's grown some muscles and he's not afraid to use them. What is going on in the temple that provokes such a forceful response from Jesus? At the heart of it is bad religion, bad religion, pure religion turned sour, true religion turned false, a holy religion that has become unholy, and it drives Jesus bonkers. Let's get into some of the specifics. What is it exactly that puts these operations under the judgment of God? We can boil it down to three elements— these three are listed in your sermon notes in the bulletins to help you remember. The first problem with the temple of Jesus' day is this. Convenience replaces reverence. Convenience replaces reverence in the worshiping life of God's people. So Jesus must drive out such bad religion. We read in verse 14, That Jesus found people selling sheep, cattle, and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. But that alone does not elicit Jesus' reaction. After all, many Jews had traveled for days to celebrate the Passover from all over the place. And God himself commanded that they do this. And once they arrive, they want to offer an animal sacrifice as their act of thankfulness. Again, something which God himself commanded. I suppose they could have brought along the family goat for all those miles, but that's a big risk. So instead, they show up in Jerusalem, and it's Passover, and it's crowded, and there's probably 100,000 people in attendance, and they're tired from a long journey, and the baby's screaming, and they are blessed by the convenience of being able to purchase an animal right there in the temple precincts. But therein lies the problem... The problem isn't that they are selling animals, per se. The problem is that they are selling them in the temple. In this way, convenience replaces reverence in the worship of God. Look at the image of the temple in your sermon notes, would you? You have your bulletin here in the middle. This is a a model of, of the temple. Do you see around the edge of the wall what's labeled Gentiles' Courtyard? You see that? It's a little fuzzy. Get acquainted with this. It's a magnificent structure, this temple in Jesus' day. So, this area marked Gentiles' Courtyard, that is where the salesmen set up shop. That's where the farmer's market was located. Not, in, not inside the gates where the Jews worshipped, but in the Gentiles' courtyard. You got that? So that's where Jesus is driving out things, in the Gentiles' courtyard. Now here's an important fact for us to know. This is the only place the Gentiles, the non-Jews, are allowed to worship the God of Israel. They can't go inside the gates like the Jews. The courtyard is their place of worship. And now it's crowded with merchants and moos and oinks and baas. Can you imagine worshiping with reverence on the busiest corner of the 4-H fair? That's somewhat what's going on right here. The value of convenience for the Jews creates a chaotic environment for God-fearing Gentiles who come to worship at the temple. Friends, it'd be like if all of our visitors at our church. We we made them worship outside. Meanwhile, we had all sorts of things going on outside, maybe a construction project. That's what's going on. There's no reason that they couldn't have set up shop just a few blocks away from the temple. This would have given the Gentiles some peace and quiet as they worshiped, but for those wanting to make a buck, convenience trumps reverence, and it makes Jesus angry. Biblical scholar Leon Morris underscores the point. He writes this about Jesus' motive. He says, Jesus' motive was one of reverence for my father's house and of deep concern that the spirit of worship should thus be dissipated at its very door. So that's the first element of bad religion that Jesus drives out on Passover. He clears out the courtyard so that the non-Jews can worship God in a spirit of reverence. The second element that makes Jesus tick is related. In the worshiping life of God's people at that time, outsiders were excluded. Outsiders were excluded. Not only did the Jews make worship quite difficult for non-Jews, but they literally walled them off from participation in the Passover festival. In fact, it wasn't only non-Jews that were excluded. If you look again at this image in the temple, you'll see that there are several layers of exclusion. God never commanded this. God never said that this was how the temple should be structured, set up. You've got the Gentiles outside here. You've got the Jewish women over there. You've got your sick people over there. And there's a separate gate for the Jewish men to enter. These are the special ones who can fully participate in worship. Friends, that is how the leaders of Jerusalem set it up, not God. And it infuriates Jesus. My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, all peoples, Jesus says in Mark's account. But you have turned it into a den of robbers. So number one, convenience replaces reverence. Number two, people are excluded. And the third element of bad religion is this. God is turned into a product and marketed. God is commodified. God is commercialized. God is viewed primarily in terms of, now what can I get out of this? How can I use this? How can I make a buck? And worship becomes self centered. What's in it for me? As I said before, the selling in and of itself is not the problem. God had required animal sacrifices for a particular purpose in the Old Testament. But what had developed was religion as big business. Not unlike the Benny Hens of today's world, the money changers were overcharging their customers and making a massive profit because of it even the sellers of doves the doves are the only animal that the poor folks can afford poor folks like jesus and his family even those who sold to the poor used their corner on the market to inflate prices and increase profit this is religion as big business and you've got to wonder whether such religious profiteers ever made it into the temple themselves to worship Or were they just interested in using God for their purposes? So that's what's going on in the temple when Jesus shows up on the scene during Passover and makes a whip of ropes. Reverence has been replaced by convenience. And if you weren't a healthy Jewish man, you were in some way or another excluded from full participation. And religious marketers were making a killing in the big business of the sacrificial system, even at the expense of the poor. So how does Jesus react? I like the message paraphrase. Jesus found the temple teeming with people selling cattle and sheep and doves. The loan sharks were out there also in full strength. Jesus put together a whip out of strips of leather and chased them out of the temple, stampeding the sheep and cattle, upending the table of the loan sharks, spilling coins left and right. He told the dove merchants, get your things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a shopping mall. In this way, Jesus drives out bad religion. I wonder, are there any elements of bad religion in the American church today? Let's start with convenience. Are there any ways that the church today prioritizes convenience over reverence? I wonder. I want to be careful here about rendering judgments because I'm well aware that I don't know the hearts of people like Jesus does. Did you catch that last line in our passage? Jesus himself knows what is in everyone. He doesn't need psychologists or sociologists. Jesus doesn't even need to hear someone else's side of the story. He sees into the true nature of every person. But I don't have that kind of perception, so I can't render perfect judgments on the church in America. That being said, our scripture text does lead us to wonder. We have to wonder about the ways the church today prioritizes convenience over reverence. I wonder about baptisms in the background. (laughs) I was at a church once where several baptisms were taking place at the same time on stage, and all the while the congregation was singing a song. Convenient, yes. (laughs) It saved loads of time. There wasn't public declarations of faith. There was no congregational commitments, no public witness of the words, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. You didn't even have to see the baptisms if you want. They were simply in the background. But I wonder, has convenience replaced reverence in the sacred sacrament of baptism? I wonder, too, about casual communion. You know the times when churches nonchalantly hint at the fact that communion is available if anyone's interested? Communion, it's over there, it's convenient, but they don't really make a big deal out of it just so no one feels uncomfortable. There's no retelling of God's acts in the history of salvation. There's no prayer for the Spirit to come. There's no words of institutions, words that Jesus himself gave us to use. None of these time-honored ancient traditions of our, cre- of our ancestors. Instead, there's just a nod to those who are interested. <laughs> I wonder about the reverence that may be lost in the attempt to keep people comfortable. Maybe that's me just being nitpicky, but I wonder. And finally, I wonder about the proclamation of the word. As many of you are aware, there was a huge push in the 80s to make worship casual. The idea was that people would be more engaged and more likely to invite their friends to church if church wasn't so high and holy. The idea shaped the architecture of churches. People started meeting in movie theaters or building churches that felt more like concert venues. And when the word was preached, well, it needed to have a casual feel to it. In fact, they weren't even called sermons anymore. Now they're called messages or talks. John gave a talk about being a better father today. Helpful? Sure. Convenient? It fits the culture perfectly but i wonder has convenience replaced reverence from the font to the table to the word excessive measures have been taken to make these things as convenient as possible in a culture of convenience this makes perfect sense but has the church unwittingly sacrificed reverence in the process now it get this now it seems it seems like It seems like we can go to church and never have to encounter the living God, whose eyes are like fiery flames, whose feet are like burnished bronze, whose voice is like the sound of rushing waters, and from whose mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword. We no longer have to encounter that God, I wonder. How about other elements of bad religion in the church today? Are you ready for more? (laughs) I won't spend much time on exclusion, (laughs) we hardly have to mention it. First century Jews excluded non-Jews and others, and Jesus was not happy with it. It was over half a century ago when the Reverend Martin Luther King said these words, It is appalling that the most segregated hour of Christian America is 11 o'clock on Sunday morning. Well, how are we doing on that one? It's appalling how uncomfortable it makes us, even in the church, to talk about race, though our Christian brothers and sisters are of many races and tongues and languages. Beyond race, there are several layers of exclusion possible. So how are we doing with including people, all people, in our prayers, in our lives, and in our worship? But at least in America, we don't market the gospel, right? At least we haven't turned God into a product to be consumed. At least the church isn't viewed as a vendor of religious goods and services. At least we don't use God language to spin a profit or get a vote. At least we don't treat God like a dispenser of spiritual experiences for the sake of our self-fulfillment. At least we don't see God as a stepping stone to a self centered spirituality. At least we haven't done any of that in America, right? Right? (laughs) Eugene Peterson isn't convinced. He writes Most religion is not gospel, most religion is idolatry, most religion is self aggrandizement, enlarging our reputation or our sense of being a good person. It is urgently required, he says, that pastors distinguish between culture, religion, and Christian gospel. He goes on to spell it out in more detail. North American religion is basically a consumer religion. America Americans see God as a product that will help them live well or live better. Having seen that, they do what consumers do. They shop for the best deal. Pastors, hardly realizing what we are doing, start making deals, packaging the God product so that people will be attracted to it, and then presenting it in ways that will beat out the competition. Religion has never been so taken up with public relations, image building, salesmanship, marketing techniques, and the competitive spirit. In case you can't tell, Eugene has a hard time saying what he really thinks. But I wonder, I wonder if he's right. I wonder if there's more than a few money changers in the temples of our churches. I wonder how it affects the way we approach God. What is our approach to God like? Do, do you come here with a long list of gratitude for all the ways God has been present and active this past week? Or do you come here with a long list of things God didn't do for you this past week and a list of ways that God can improve next week? Do you come here eager to worship God with a glad heart in response to God's goodness? Or do you come here feeling like God owes you something and you're here to receive your blessing? I wonder... Here's a quote to ponder this week from St. Augustine, who's interpreting this same text in the fourth century. He writes Who are they who sell the oxen? Who are they who sell the sheep and doves? They are those who seek their own interests in the church rather than those of Jesus Christ. Those who have no desire for redemption have everything for sale. They do not want to be bought, they want to sell. So what do we do about this temptation towards self-centered spirituality? What do we do about our tendencies, of each one of us, let's be honest, what do we do about our tendencies to ask of God and Christ church, well, what's in it for me? Is the answer to try harder? (laughs) Trying is what got us into the mess in the first place. Left to ourselves, we only make things worse. But thanks be to God, there's Jesus. There's Jesus, both in the story of our scripture and in the story of our lives. And the good news, the good news, is that Jesus drives out bad religion. This may not sound like good news at first, unless we believe John's testimony about Jesus so far in the gospel. This may not sound like good news that Jesus drives out bad religion, Unless we realize that this Jesus is the eternal Word, who is in the beginning with God, the Word that gives light to all people, the Word who becomes flesh and lives among us. Even more, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the multiplier of wine and gladness, as we discovered last week. When we understand these things about Jesus, We begin to see the value in Jesus' actions in the temple, the good news to us. Turns out we don't know how to relate to God all that well. Turns out we have a tendency of trying to earn our salvation by offerings and sacrifices and church attendance. Turns out we have a knack for using things for our self-interest, and that includes using other people and using God. But Jesus knows these things about us, too. He doesn't need anyone to tell him, for he sees into our true nature. So he names our broken situation. He identifies our broken hearts, our broken relationship with God and others, and he drives it out with truth. That's what Jesus first does in our text, and that's what Jesus does in our lives, and it's good news he names our situation for what it is, not glossing over the difficulties, the challenges, the idolatries. Simply by identifying culture religion, we have cleared out the way for Jesus to teach us about gospel religion. So what is this gospel religion? That's the second part of our passage. <laughs> After Jesus drives out The cattle pours out the coins, overturns the tables. All of this helps clear the air. And then Jesus is asked a question, verse 18. The Jews then said to them, What sign can you show us for doing this? What's fascinating about this question is that the answer isn't self-evident. It wasn't immediately clear to bystanders what this Jewish young man was doing. Most people had no idea who the guy was at this time, you see. Last week, we heard about the wedding of Cana, but that took place in a podunk town, and not many people knew about it. As of now, not many people know about this Jesus. So what sign can you show us for doing this, the Jews ask. In other words, what's the deal, man? Who are you? Why are you wrecking our business? Are you some sort of prophet Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it again. The Jews then said, This temple has been under construction for 46 years, and will you raise it up in three days? And here's the kicker. But Jesus was speaking of the temple of his body. There it is. Jesus was replacing bad religion with the temple of his body body there it is that is gospel religion this is true religion reinstated this is pure religion 100 proof there is holy religion made holy by the gracious acts of the holy god jesus was speaking of the destruction and rebuilding of his body That is the heart of worship, the death and resurrection of Jesus. That is the point of religion, the love of God for humanity, the sacrificial love of God for his children. That is the center of spirituality, a daily dying to self and rising to new life in the spirit, the good life which is defined by Jesus' life. It's not about the offerings of humans trying to get right with God, but it's about God's self-offering in Jesus Christ, motivated by God's immense love for us, his creatures. Friends, what Jesus is doing in our passage and what Jesus is doing in our midst today is not only pulling out the roots of bad religion, he's also planting the seed of good religion. It's the seed of his body, which is given for you bad religion where convenience trumps reverence people are excluded and god is used for self-promotion jesus roots it out and in its place jesus plants his loving suffering self as the seed of true religion it is the seed of his body which dies but whose death results in the multiplication of life in every corner of our earth. It's no wonder the cross is the central symbol of the Christian faith. So what does this mean? What does it mean that Jesus' death and resurrection is the center of religion? It means that the Christian faith is not primarily about what we can do for God. Rather, at its core, it's about what God has done for us and what God is doing for us. This is rather stunning news if you're hearing it for the first time. And it's quite ironic given our condition. We tend to seek out God and religion by looking inwardly and asking, What's in it for me? But Jesus redirects our attention away from ourselves toward God. And it's precisely in that turn toward God, that we discover what's in it for us. And what's in it for us is everything. It's life. It's the life that's truly worth living. Freedom from the self-absorbed life and immersion into the life of divine love, which is poured into us by the grace of the Holy Spirit. When divine love is poured into us, it's far too much for us to keep it to ourselves. It pours out of us quite naturally by the power of the Spirit. And so we love others, all others, as Christ loved the church. And so we quite naturally worship God with thankful hearts, wanting to tell God, I love you too. That is Christian worship. Can you see through our worship service, what God is giving through the death and resurrection of Jesus? Can you see through our worship what God has sacrificed long before you even thought about sacrificing a thing? Can you see through our worship what God is offering in the temple of his body every single week? May it be so, Holy Spirit. Give us eyes to see the temple of Jesus' body for what it is, Jesus' body broken for us. Give us ears to hear the word that tells of all God has done for us, and give us hearts to feel the love of God, whose Son considered it nothing to empty himself, taking the form of a servant and climbing on the cross so that all might fall within your saving embrace. May it be so, Lord Jesus. Amen.